Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. We will read the Bible at Luke chapter 15. We will read verses 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 25. Luke 15, 1 and 2 and then 25 following. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Femi. Uh, for the word of the Lord, for the reading. And good morning, City Church. And um, as they say from my place, Ekojo. You know, we can, in Nigeria, especially in Yoruba land, we can greet everybody with anything, right? So it's a rainy day, it's a cold day in some places, and we know it's uh, hindered movement in the morning, but we give praise to God who saw us through and brought us here to be in his presence. We are concluding our mini-series on the parables of Jesus. We are essentially preparing for our mission month, and our exploration of the Lost and Found series is supposed to help us uh, fulfill one of the goals uh, of City Church, which is to produce uh, a community of worshipers on mission. It is to help us understand God's heart uh, for those who are lost, so that we can not just understand, but also adopt God's uh, heart of mercy, God's heart of love, and then hopefully shape us as we go out in our different environments and speak to people of this love of God and bring them in for the programs we have towards um, uh, the mission month. So, the story is told about Cook County, Chicago, about uh, during it, about 1995 when county officials in that place were burying 68 people at one time, 68 people in one mass grave just outside of Chicago. And who are these people? Now, Chicago is a big city, right? Um, it has many, many enclaves. You have the Jewish community. You may have some of the Italian community. Um, but, you know, you also had a lot of people who, who are lost. It's a really, really big city. And Chicago at one time was known as the murder capital of, uh, of, of the U.S., uh, but these people were not necessarily victims of murder, um, even though death had become something that was expected or that was sort of uh, seen on a daily basis in that city, right? You had so many anonymous people. Chicago has, like any big city, much like New York, much like Lagos, people come from all over the place. Uh, Chicago is in the Midwest, so other Midwestern states like uh, whether it's Ohio, Idaho, or some of those places where, you know, agrarian communities, uh, when, when, when the sons decide they don't want to do farming anymore, or the daughters decide that uh, this is not their thing, they move on to Chicago. So Chicago is a big place. There are so many people who come in. They're anonymous. They're hustling. They're struggling uh, to get by. And um, what eventually happens is that a lot of people fall behind on their dreams 
the typical hair of that story when people say they go to LA, right? I go to Los Angeles to become an actor, but here I'm washing plates, or tables, I'm waiting tables, I'm driving a car, I'm waiting for my big break. That happens in most big cities too. They fall off the grid, they fall off the radar of their friends. After a while, even their family uh, uh, don't hear from them anymore. So, so much so that when they die, nobody knows. Nobody knows, nobody cares. They just die. So eventually somebody will find them in the streets, in some alley, if they were victims of crime. And sometimes they'll die in their apartments, especially if they are sort of elder, uh, elderly and during winter or something like that. They'll die in their apartments. And usually it's the stench that comes out after a couple of weeks that will alert people that somebody is in there. So many of them are old, but some are actually young also. And when these dead bodies are found, the county officials will go around and search for the relatives. The medical examiner has a responsibility of holding those bodies uh, in the morgue until somebody comes home to claim the body. But in, in this case, nobody comes to claim the body. And so eventually, the county will find uh, uh, you know, some garden or somewhere outside the city. They'll dig 200-foot trenches, and they'll line up the boxes. They'll bury them. No marker, no stone, nothing whatsoever. Nobody to, remem uh, to remember that they came about or they came around. And this sense of alienation, if you've, if you've moved outside of your comfort zone, you've moved from, you know, from somewhere else to Lagos or you've moved abroad, this sense of alienation, this sense of not knowing anyone, of being disconnected, um, a lot of us know it. A lot of us are fearful of it. The prospect of dying without being known, um, as fearful as that is, it is much more worrisome. It is much more fearful to die without knowing God or without being known by God. And so the idea of lostness is not a small thing. It's not just about the person doesn't know God, right? It's about it's the fact that he, they carry that lostness. Now, people can put up a brave face. People can put up, uh, you know, they're getting by. They may be making money. In some cases, they're not, right? Because you can, if you're doing well, you can cover up that lostness with a lot of, uh, um, a lot of things, right? But when you're not doing so well, it's, it's that alienation, that sense of alienation is so much more clearer. And even if you have means and even if you're rich, at some point in your life, you will realize that um, you are disconnected from God. And then you can start covering over with more things, right, and more activity. Luke chapter 15 is about how the love of God comes into the cities and goes into the suburbs and finds people who are lost. From the stories of, from the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and now these two brothers, it is a story of God coming to search for us in cities where we are lost. He comes and finds us, and he brings us uh, to his house and makes us sons and daughters. Christ, who is telling the parable, wants us to understand the heart of the Father, to tell you exactly what I'm about, right? And he shows us the love and dedication and the extraordinary lengths that his father, the father in the story, of course, obviously, as a standing for God the Father, how he would go to come and reach us and rescue us. And so let us examine the second part. With last week, we talked about the lost son. For those who are not here last week, you sort of wonder why Femi skipped from 1 and 2 and went on to uh, 25. It's because we've taken... Um, over the last few weeks, uh, the rest of um, those verses, and we're now talking about the response of the older brother to the younger. Let us bow our heads and pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you, every single one of us that has experienced your love and your mercy, and who here has not, Lord? We thank you for reaching out and drawing us to yourself. If today we feel connected, if today we feel a sense of balance, if today we feel secure, it is because you came to us, Lord, and you showed us your love and drew us to yourself. And Lord, we ask that we would come to an understanding of exactly all the things that you do, Lord, to draw men unto you. We pray that every heart that is here will be shaped and molded and will feel and experience that love, Heavenly Father, and we know exactly why you placed us here on earth. We pray that your word will touch every heart and bless us and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like Femi said in verse 1 and 2, you notice who the audience, the reason why he went back to 1 and 2, is that we want to see, remind ourselves who the audience to these uh, this parables, right? It was the scribes and the Pharisees that were being spoken to. They were complaining and they were making insinuations that this man is allowing, he's just been indiscriminate in who allows to come and have a chat with him. 
Uh, if, for those of you who may be in financial circles, if the CBN governor uh, is in town, right, uh, comes to Lagos, who are those who would expect to have uh, the first priority over his time? It would be the bank MDs, right? It would be the economists, right? So, so this man, even though they've not accepted Jesus Christ as the son of God, yeah, he's a great prophet. There's a lot of noise about him. Miracles are happening. And we should be at the forefront of, of engaging with this great prophet. But he's allowing riffraff, tax collectors, sinners to come in. And, you know, the Q&A is for us. And yet he's allowing these people to interrogate him and ask him and he's telling them parables. It seems like he came to Lagos for them, right, rather than for us, the Pharisees. Uh, and so, and not only that, when the official Q&A session is done, and they go and have fellowship meeting, who does he go and eat with, the Pharisees or, in this case, it was the, uh, the, uh, the tax collectors and sinners. And that's what they were grumbling about, that he's going to have meals and to, to stay with them. And these guys were the ones that were despised. So when Jesus tells this story, this parable, that shows the son, talking about this son, this dissolute son. Just think about when they were talking about the boy, the young son, who went out and wasted his living. You know, they were thinking, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what should happen to a wasteful son. Think of the scandal in their mind when that son is restored. The father, like we spoke about last week, the father did not allow him to undertake his restitution plan. Instead, just embraces him, gives him a robe, gives him a signet ring, gives him sandals and caught, throws a party for him. Just imagine what's going through the, the Pharisees' mind. What's this guy stop? Is he, is, he, is he encouraging grace? Is he encouraging sin? You know, you know, what's going to stop, what will stop other sons from just upping, taking on their father's inheritance, going out, wasting it? If this father's disposition is that he will just let them come back in with no punishment, no restitution. This is encouraging bad grace, they're thinking. Right? And now think of it now when Jesus completes his story and then talks about the righteous son, the one who stayed with the father, the one who spent his time and walked the field, the one who is the good one, the Pharisee, or at least the one whom the Pharisees see themselves in. Just imagine what they're thinking when Jesus talks about the son, about this son, and how, I don't know if you noticed that the story actually ends on a cliffhanger. The wasteful son receives, I mean, we saw last week, he went through his restlessness, his discontent, he went through his wasteful phase, he came back, his story ends with reconciliation and a festival. How does this second son's story end? It's a cliffhanger, we don't know. He doesn't say. She just actually doesn't say it. It ends with the offer. They just offered it to him, but he doesn't tell them how it ends. What is he just trying to tell the Pharisees? What is he trying to signal to them? So in many portions, a lot of us are able to identify with the younger prodigal son. We remember in, our, in us our restlessness, our own disenchantment. We remember our wasteful past with our time, money, with God's opportunities, with relationships. We remember how we awoke, you know, came to our senses, how we resolved to come back to God, our journey back, and all those that God used to preach to us, to teach us, to pray for us, our wonderful mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and, you know, people who just did great things for us. We remember our shame as we cried, and, you know, when we were confessing our sins, and the trust, when we, we remember how it felt to, how secure we felt when we, when we then eventually trusted in Christ, this unbelief at some time, at some point in time, that God would just freely forgive us. And many of us try to, you know, sort of, Bargain, give God our own, make God our own offer, right? And every time we've sinned, we're like, oh my goodness, I'm not really saved. And then we'll come back again, that sort of. We, we recognize uh, ourselves or we see ourselves in the son. But we find it harder to see ourselves in this elder son. We see ourselves in the younger son, uh, but we find it harder to see ourselves in this older son. And this older son is a great reason why. Many people, many people don't come to the faith. We're going to be teaching, uh, taking in Mission Month a couple of Q&A, uh, two sessions actually. One where we're talking about Christians. Why is it that, um, why should I believe in spite of the fact that Christians are hypocrites? We'll see in this story how the actions of the elder son can be a deterrent to harmony in the house of God. So in verse 25 to 26, says the old, his older son was in the field. 
As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. So we find the elder son doing the work faithfully, isn't it? He's in the field. I mean, I mean, there's no other way to, he was working. He was doing his daily rounds, doing his apportioned work. As usual, I forget to start my timer. He was doing his daily rounds, um, his apportioned work, um, this same work that the younger son despised. So, you know, in his own mind, he'll be, he'll be this, since the, the son had left the house, in his own mind, you know, doing this work consistently, in spite of the, uh, that younger son's rejection of it, should actually raise his esteem in his father's eyes. He comes home to something that is unfamiliar to him, in spite of his many years with the father, the sound of merriment. He's a son. He does not know what joy is. He does not know what merriment is. He has never relaxed with his father. He, the sound is strange. He has to say, what, what's going on? <laughs> we don't have parties in our house. There is no music in our house. There is no joy in our house. You know, this is not normal. This is not the experience of our family in our house, right? It's strange. He calls a servant to, uh, to a slave to explain to him what's going on. And, um, and he's told, right? He's so disconnected from the spirit of joy. Uh, he's a joyless, mirthless song, amongst other things. Now, we see that this older son, he does care about the father's things. He cares about the estate. That's why he continues to work, right? If he didn't care about the father's things, he would not be at work um, uh, at this point in time. But the question is, does he truly care about the father? We saw clearly with the young son that this young son wants the father's things. He was disconnected, he was disenchanted, and he told the father straight out. He says, look, give me the portion that belongs to me. I want my money now, I want my inheritance now, I'm going, and I'm, you know, so I can get out of here and spend it. So it was clear. This other son, this older son, he's doing the work, but it isn't clear why he's doing the work. It isn't clear whether he's, he loves his father or whether he's only attached to the gifts also. And the slave replied in verse 27, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in and his father came out and appealed to him. So he's given the good news. Not only is he given the good news, he's told the source or the reason for the uh, merriment. Um, he says, I mean, the slave is careful to tell him because he got his son back safe and sound. So even if, no matter the feelings he may have had about the uh, younger son's wastefulness, the fact of the son's, I mean, the announcement of his safety, his son, meaning he's not harmed, he's not dead, you know, he came back to us, that should have triggered something as a brother. The merriment is also an indication of his father, that his father is happy. If somebody is throwing a party, it means his father is happy with the condition of the son. Now, you remember how when you were a child, and uh, if you didn't have, or maybe, well, hopefully most of us had a good relationship with our brothers and sisters, but if you were in, in a particular time where you were fighting and, um, and your, your sibling happened to offend your father, offend your son, or your, your, they did something and your parents discovered it, you know that feeling of glee? Then, 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 right? So, so, you know, so we're not so different from the other father. We're not so different, right? There are parts of our lives where we, we act like this older son. However, we don't despise or hate our siblings so much so that if we heard that our sibling was in trouble outside of the house, was in hospital, was in an accident, or was kidnapped, that would actually, you know, and then we heard that they came back to the house. We would actually know, I don't think any of us, or most normal people, would not say, you know, God has caught you today. Daddy will beat you on top of the kidnapping you just experienced. Right? It's not normal. It's not typical to have uh, that in your mind. So, the reports of his father's elation, the father's, the, fa the father's happiness at the son's return should at least have moved him to compassion. But instead, it goes the opposite direction. We see anger, and of the, we see anger at the father, and we see rejection of the younger brother. And, it, and he expresses that by refusing to go into the feast. Now, imagine a Middle Eastern tradition where a father tells a son, you know, come, come join me. I have guests. Imagine if it wasn't, so he wasn't even the younger brother. The father has a, a VIP house guest in the room, and he says, Femi, come and meet my friends. And Femi says, no, I won't. I mean, for whatever reason, whether he wanted to show you off because he just graduated or 
you made good. It doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a total, uh, it amounts to total disrespect to uh, sort of push the father away and refuse to go into the, uh, into the hall with him. And so we see by that single action that he himself is alienated from his father. He refuses to go in. He refuses, if not for the brother's sake, for the father's sake. And that's how we know that his work for the father is completely different. The motivation for work for the father is not love for the father. It's not respect for the father. It's not any kind of regard for the father. Because he's the same father that he uh, utterly uh, disrespects. He did not cherish their relationship. He did not give him his due respect. He, like the younger brother, it's up here, it turns out, they want the father's possessions. But they just go about it in two different ways. And so we see these two tendencies in us, in, in, human, in human beings, one towards lasciviousness, where we just want to have control of our life, do whatever we want, um, satisfy our flesh, right? Like the younger son, just let me be, I'll do, I want to be whatever I want to be, right? Let me have control over my life. And we get into a, 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 a scenario where we're committed to doing the worst things um, uh, over time. We want to be independent of God. In actual fact, what we refer to as, uh, what I mean, Christians refer to as antinomianism is essentially a disagreement with God over the definition of sin. God says, this thing is a sin. You say, no, it shouldn't be a sin. I don't think it's a sin. I think I should be free to engage in that. On the opposite spectrum is the legalist, right? Legalism, that we've heard that word legalism, uh, you've heard it many, many times, is essentially a disagreement with God over the definition of righteousness. God has a way, God has things that he defines as righteousness. You disagree with God over what righteousness is. God says, you know, I've looked at you, you know, you're, 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 you're fallen. It's, there's nothing you can offer me. All, your, all of your offerings, everything, they're filthy rags. All of your righteous works, that's, he looks at the whole of humanity. He says, but you know what? In my kindness, I'm going to provide for your righteousness. And then he shows us his own way for righteousness. And then we say, no, I think I'm going to find my own way and end your favor and end your, your blessings. And that's why it's important to see why if the son almost dabbles, you know, the son is a rebel, the son was lascivious, he was prodigal, he was wistful, that's the younger son. And we see that when he repents, he doesn't repent into grace. He doesn't repent into it. Takes the, it takes the father to remind him of what grace is. When he repents of his rebellion, he switches straight back to legalism. He was going to offer his restitution plan. He says, uh, what did he say? He says, yes, father, forgive me. He says, uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He strips himself of his sonship, and then he asks to, be, to earn his wages, to, earn, to become a hired servant so he can earn wages and pay back the inheritance that he has already taken and squandered, right? Never mind that the land that has been carved up and sold can never be put back together. There's no way he could earn. He could restore himself or restore him, whatever it is the father had given to him. There's no way he could restore it. But thankfully, he didn't even get a chance to you know, to spit out the whole plan. The father cuts him short, embraces him, kisses him, and then we see God's own plan of grace. We see the father's plan of grace in embracing the son uh, by restoring him to, to that status. But our bent, sometimes we're bent towards these uh, antinomial ways where we rebel against God. But other times, in fact, a lot of other times, our bent, our tendencies towards this self-righteous arrogance where we try to earn God's favor or if you are doing good, or we're doing good, we're obeying the Father with a heart to taking or getting God's blessings. And so one of the hot topics that we didn't treat uh, was about tithing. You know, uh, in, the, in the Milan Fund yesterday, one of the questions that were, we could have taken but we didn't was one about tithing. The re reason why we are always, and you know, there's a, we can talk about that in other forms, but the reason why we always talk about those who tithe, where we, we're careful to talk to people who tithe and to make sure that, uh, that they understand what it means, is that you never get to a point where the way tithes are used in our community, where people feel like they are giving to God so they can do what? Get back from God. You know, where the sowing and reaping has become, uh, the, or the sowing and reaping is philosophy or doctrine has become extended in such a way that people are now transactional in their approach to God, right? And that is our natural tendency. Uh, towards self-righteousness, where we try to impress God uh, with our performance. We try to get access to our own heart's desires by obeying God. 
So the older brother, it seems like, wants things. He wants the father's things, just like the younger son wanted the father's things. But he's going about it in a different way. He's obedient to the father uh, so that he can get the inheritance, whereas the younger brother rebelled uh, to get his own share of things from the father. But this action, so on the surface, the, the older brother, I mean, from the Pharisee standpoint, and if, if Jesus did not sort of break down this, uh, this parable, from the surface, from all outward appearances, the older brother is the righteous brother. The older brother is the correct brother. He's one who is in good standing with his father. But his self-righteous anger, his rejection of his father, his bitterness actually shows that he lacks love in his heart. And then even the duty he thinks he has done well, he hasn't done it very well at all. When the younger son left the house, who should have gone to look for the brother? Is it the old father or the, young, or the, or the brother in the house? Who do you think? Who should have gone to look for the younger brother? Oh, we're confused. Or oh, no, we don't know. Sorry? Oh, they have servants. They have servants. They have servants. Is, who's, you know, yeah, they have servants. They have slaves. They have slaves. They have hired men. Says so my father has many, many hired hands, right? Who owns the person? Who owns the relationship? So the father is the offended one. The father has been rebelled against. Let's assume the father is very angry. Let's assume the father is not this generous, not this generous, loving uh, father that we see. He's, he's, he's angry. And he says, and in fact, as the son was departed, he says, I banish you. I don't want to ever see you again. You are cut off. I never want to see you again. So the father is not going to go and look for him. Who should go and look for the younger son? It's the brother. He's the older brother. It is the siblings that seek reconciliation between other siblings and the parents. The father may be too proud. The father may be too old. The father may be too wicked. It's the siblings that understand what that relationship is about and seek reconciliation, not enmity. They don't keep winding mommy and daddy. They don't keep... So, you know, in, in some cases, in this particular case, right, the inheritance has been shared. And the funny thing is that the Middle Eastern pattern, also uh, part of how Arabs and Muslims do things, the, uh, the pattern of inheritance is that the first son always gets a double portion. So if there are four kids in the house, and let's assume the father dies and wants to share his inheritance, they will actually divide the inheritance into five. The older son, elder son will get two portion, well, a double portion, and the rest will get one each. Why is that done? Why is that typically the case? Because... The, uh, the first son not only, inherits, uh, not only inherits his own portion, but he also inherits the duties and responsibilities of the father. So, for example, if the father uh, hosts a family meal for the, all the children and all the extended family on a monthly basis, if they share for them equal portions, think about having a family meal where you kill the fatted calf every month for all your extended family for 10 years. The older son will become poor very quickly, won't he? When uh, servants are in trouble, when somebody wants to give birth, when somebody's calf dies, he is responsible for the estate. And the extra portion that is given to him is supposed to enable him to take care of the whole family without affecting the portion for his own immediate family. He's given an extra inheritance so that he can step into the responsibilities of, of a father. So the younger son received, there are only two kids, the, younger, the older son received two-thirds of the inheritance. But he will not spend a dime to journey out. In fact, what is happening is that, you know, this guy better not come back. And that's the problem we see with the older son. Two-thirds of the inheritance, he should have sought to be the one to elevate the father's humiliation. The father was humiliated. He had to sell his land, right? And people were like, why are you selling your land? Said. And then the story goes out that the, the son called for, the, uh, for his inheritance, took it, and then went and wasted it. He should have gone to humiliate, uh, to alleviate the father's humiliation, his pain. He should have honored the father's love for his younger son and gone to search for him. The cost would have been to that older brother, but he had the resources. He had the grace from the father. The father had given him enough to undertake that responsibility. But what the son, what the elder son is probably thinking is that, if this guy has gone and wasted his own money, if you come and restore him and he brings back, let's even assume he has spent half of the money. 
he's gone to and, and he comes back into the family, out of whose, whose pot is he now going to take extra? Right? So the, the elder brother would not only have had to sacrifice himself or part of the resources to go and find the brother. When the brother comes back, whether it's half the resources that are left, whether it's nothing, in this case, we learned that he squandered everything. Right? Whatever the son would need, the younger son would need for his sustenance. Remember the word for property? When the Bible says uh, that the father, uh, the father uh, took his property and split it, the, uh, the word there means sustenance, bios, the life, the thing that sustains the family. That younger son would need sustenance, right, for the rest of his time. And that sustenance would have had to come from where? What was left with the son. And this son was not going to share. This older son was not going to share. And so, once again, the father, the loving father, comes out. He reaches out. He entreats. He begs his son. He's not minding the shame that his older son, his first son, disrespected him. Now his older son is, dis is disrespecting him. Verse 29 says, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've worked like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you have never given me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets and prostitutes, you killed the father calf for him. Just imagine what is buried in this man's, this older son's heart. Good on the outward, practiced men of obedience. You know, me and outward, yes, sir, yes, daddy, yes, mommy. You know, that go and do this, he goes and he does it. But now when the, when the, when the, when the pin hits the boil, right, he erupts. He shows his true self. His hypocritical mask comes off, and his inner heart is exposed. How is it exposed? First, he shows disdain for his father. He could even say, father. The younger son, even though he's rebellious, when he says, Father. Give me the share of inheritance that came to him. How does the older son address the father? Look. Look. He doesn't even call him. He doesn't even address him as a parent. He says, look. Right? And you know, you know how you know, you're Africans now. He says, look. Oga, chief. Right? He can't address him as a father. Instead, he addresses him with, look. He shows his self-righteousness. I've worked as a slave for you. But he was not a slave. He was a son. I've worked as a slave for you, right? But the focus was in himself. And there was no joy in his duties. There was no joy in his work. So his disdain for the father is revealed. His self-righteousness in working for his father is revealed. His spiritual blindness. I've never disobeyed your commands. That's not likely true, right? Um, he, first of all, yes, he may have physically or outwardly obeyed. But obviously, he complained on a daily basis in his heart. To erupt like this against his father, he must have complained about the father's, you know, how the father did not handle the first sons, you know, why did we have to, to split the land, right? He must have complained on a daily basis. He's also blind to the fact that he has hatred in his heart, perhaps, uh, for his son. So when you say, I've never disobeyed your commands, um, you know, I'm, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I've done everything well, he ignores the state of his heart. He only looks at his own outward um, expression. He's bitter. He accused the father of injustice. I've done all this work. You haven't rewarded me. It's unjust for me to work all this time with you and not even get something from you. So he's bitter against the father. Uh, and he's boastful. So apparently all this time he wanted to throw a party with his friends. He, his father is, man, the father is wealthy, right? And, you know, you, know, you know, we're wealthy, but, you know, we don't show off in our family. We don't, we're very humble in our family. Apparently not. He wanted to, he actually wanted, he did, because, it's, because his complaint was not that the father did not kill a fatted calf for him to, to share with the father, to rejoice with the father, or, or party with the father. He was not interested in partying. He wasn't interested in fellowship with the father. He's my friends. You didn't give me a, a calf so I could go and, so I could declare for my, we're wealthy. We can actually afford it. Apparently, we can afford it, right? He's boastful in his heart. He's jealous. This party is for his uh, younger son, younger brother, and he feels like this son did not deserve it. And that's what jealousy is, right? Jealousy at the heart says that that person doesn't deserve the blessing you're giving to him. I'm the one who deserves the blessing. God, you must be blind. You can't see that this guy, I mean, you, God, you must be blind. You can't see that this person is just completely not deserving. How did you work it out that you chose him for this thing? And I'm standing here. 
That's what jealousy is. He's saying to God that you deserve something more than the other. So he's jealous. He has malice in his heart, which causes him to assume the worst and make up stories about. Now, the, Dabu does, the, the, uh, the story does not tell us anything about prostitutes, does it? Does it tell us anything that the son consulted with prostitutes? It said it went while living. So you can assume a lot of things, but you didn't have to, you know, let me put this way. The, the younger son has messed up big time. He's already in trouble. He's already, or at least he was already away from the, from, from the house. There's no need to add to his sins. The disrespect, the wastefulness, you know, the shaming the father's name is enough. There, there simply was no reason for him to add that uh, he spent it with prostitutes. He said it while living. It may be he, he slept with prostitutes, but he doesn't know that for four. He was in a far land. He wasn't there. He has malice towards his younger brother, and he was embellishing uh, the younger brother's sins. And that he was holding a grudge against his father. He begrudged the father's lavish mercy towards the son. In Matthew 20, 1 to 16, Jesus to, uh, gives a, pro, uh, a parable about a vine owner who goes out to, uh, to work his field. And usually they use day laborers. And he came at 6 o'clock. He contracted certain men. They agreed a fee. And they went in to do the work in the vineyard. He, came, he comes again at 9 o'clock. He finds some other people, no work, sign a contract with them for the same fee, go in and work. He does the same thing at, I think, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and I think maybe 5 o'clock because the work day ends at 6. So at 5 o'clock, you know, those guys, so five, they're, going, they're going to do the work. 6 o'clock rings, he comes, he pays everybody their wages. Those who started in the morning, those who started in the morning start to complain. They say, ah, we've, we've borne the brunt of the sun. It's 12 hours labor. These people have only worked for one hour. Right? And you give them the same wages. And then the, the laborer, uh, the workman, uh, the, the owner of the field, the field owner tells uh, the laborer, he says, did I give you what we contracted for? So I gave you exactly what we contracted for. So you're not really angry that I cheated you. Your anger is not about an injustice towards you. Your anger is that I'm generous to somebody else. That is true hardness of heart. That is a true legalist. That is true. That is us a lot of times. That is us a lot of times. This is entirely the picture of the older son. His grudge against his father is that the father was too lenient to the younger son. And oftentimes, sometimes we try to, uh, Christians, we try to understand, get our theology right, and make sure that, you know, we're not making any mistakes. But I think we're far too concerned about how sinful the sinner is. That we never get, how egregious, we're easily shocked by people's sins. And that shock causes us to take a holier than that attitude and says, God must deal with these kinds of people. Have you heard people complain that a so-called, a girl, while she was in college, was a Ron's girl. She was with all the men. All the men had her. All the men. I don't know who that is, yeah. But all the men had her. And see, she graduated and she found a good husband. And now they're in church. Ah! And things are going well for them. She seemed to never have paid for her Ron's life. Oh, God. Why? There is deep pain that a sinful, utterly disgusting person repented, came to God, that their life was transformed, that they didn't suffer the consequence of their sin. Have you heard that story before? Have you heard that, that exact story I mentioned? That exact, I'm not saying a different typo, that exact story. I can't tell you the countless amount of times I've heard it. So what would you have God do? Beat them first, show the stripes and the marks, and then invite them in. If it were us, if it were the elder son, that's what would have happened. So this brother has allowed anger to take root in his heart. He's unable to show compassion for his brother. And you see the problem with legalism, right? Worry, anxiety, fear, hatred, anger, bitterness builds up. All the while, your outward appearance is nice. Good morning, daddy. Good morning, mommy. Hello, pastor. How are you? Brother, how are you doing? 
How are you doing? I'm good. I'm well. Excellent. We bless God. Hallelujah. Praise his name. We thank God. We're pushing it. God is helping us. He gives us strength. As his strength leads us, it is well. It's a problem. We can follow before God. It's a problem in three, in three fronts. Before God, we follow the proper Christian forms, make all the right noises, but in our hearts, we are moral degenerates. Within the church, the position we take is that we're judgmental of everyone. Anyone that does not conform to our own idea of what it means to be a real Christian, we take, over, we take away their Christian card. You know, because, you know, God gives identity card for all Christians. So when we decide this person is not in conformity, Corey, take his card. Take, take his card away from him. We withdraw. We say he's not a real Christian. I don't think he's a real Christian. But that's not our prerogative. Even when we find people behaving at their worst, Paul will say, Paul will call them a so-called brother. He says, okay, don't have any fellowship with him. If he's if he's man of speech, man of life, his doctrine is going to be destructive. We don't know whether he's a Christian or not. Says, don't worry, just withdraw from him, so he doesn't affect you. That's all you can do. But it's also a problem when it comes to missions, because the legalist who is in contact with sinners can never bring himself to reach out to the worst of society. Can never. Their sins will shock you. You know. Even when you put on, you know, and you try and go and fill among, the first time they do it, like, ah! No, this is not for me. It's a problem that we all have to, we can't let it stay. We can't let it fester in us. We have to deal with it, right? Our tendencies towards self-righteousness, towards thinking people are worse, uh, are so bad that God cannot reach them, or think that we are better than them. We have to avoid the judging and the despising. I'm rounding up now. In verse 31 to 32, the last part, we see the generous offer. So we've looked at this man's, the elder son's, his heartlessness. We've seen how he has accused his father. And now, the third part, you know, they talk about the, a good storyline. It is said that a good story usually has a background introduction, usually has a conflict, and the third part, there should be resolution of that conflict. Alas, we have a problem. In 31, 32, the father says to the son, Son, you're always with me. Everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father, just like to the younger son, he comes to the older one to initiate reconciliation. He points out that you actually always, all I had was always yours. The fact that you've not experienced or you're not experiencing joy and merriment and fellowship, it's not, it's not because you didn't have these things. It's because your heart was not with me. You were not having fellowship with me. But it was all yours, always yours. And you can start enjoying those things by coming into the hall with me. Let's start by rejoicing over our brother. My son, your brother. Let's start, let's start by rejoicing over the sinner that repents. If you can find in your heart compassion for the worst of people, the most despised of people, and sometimes they deserve it. If you can find compassion for them, then you are on your way to enjoying God. The older son never utilized the blessings that were at his disposal, whether they be spiritual blessings, love, joy, peace, gentleness, all those things. All the fruit of the spirit that God provides for us, many people never actually step into it. And in this manner, the brother and us were similar to the Pharisees with a region of good works, hoping to earn God's blessings, failing to understand the grace of God, failing to accept the righteousness that God provides, and then going to attempt to provide their own means of righteousness, according to Romans chapter 9. And so they were irate whenever Jesus received and forgave unholy people, failing to see their own need for a savior. Again, we don't see any resolution in this second act, in this lost son story. All we see, all we are left with is a generous offer of reconciliation. A picture of a father pleading and saying, come inside and celebrate with me. 
we know how it ended for the Pharisees. They never came in. They never accepted the offer. In fact, they went on to organize a trial and a crucifixion for Jesus. Never accepted it. Never came in. Their end was tragic. And Jesus leaves the story hanging so we can take dressing and ensure that we don't experience the same ending. That our tendencies that we begin to watch towards our tendencies towards whether it's antinomianism like the younger son or towards legalism this parable tells us that both of them are unacceptable to God but the antinomial now I'm not saying antinomianism is better but the antinomian can have someone point to him and say you're a sinner and he can come to his senses quicker the legalist it's very difficult for someone to point out exactly what is wrong with him because he keeps it all hidden he keeps it all on the inside and so many of us suffer more from legalism than antinomial ways. I mean, sometimes there are times where we, we, we sort of push back against the law of God. We want to have our own way. We experience that, no doubt. But not many Christians experience it for long periods of time. Or if they do, they get over it and they're back. They come back to the fold. They come back to fellowship with God. But legalism can continue with you for a very long time without any break, without any repentance, without anybody calling you out for it. It is insidious, and so we have to watch out for it. We are most fortunate that even though the Pharisees rejected the story of God, rejected the parable and its implications, we have, unlike the elder brother, we have an older brother who sees the alienation between the father and his children and who came down and reached out to us. Jesus Christ is that older brother. In fact, we read in Hebrews how he says he comes to declare the name of God and he calls us brothers and sisters. Here I am, and then he presents us to the Father and says, Here I am, I and the children that you have given me. Sons and daughters lost. Christ comes down to save us and he brings us in into the hall. And he has prepared a feast for us sometime in the future. We have many things now on earth, but he has prepared a great feast for us. And the scripture says many will come in Matthew, many will come from the east, from the west, to come enjoy the great uh, banquet of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's the sinners that come in. The older brothers don't come in. The legalists don't come in. It's those who acknowledge that they are sinful, that they are rebels, that they have wasted God's resources, that they've wasted God's time, that they've been prodigal. And those are the ones who will enjoy the robes of righteousness, the signet rings, the sandals, and the great food in that banquet. We are thankful for our loving Father who sent this older brother also. And we would like for us to continue to ponder on these things and to say to ourselves, what kind of brother should I be? So there's a portion of this message that has or have us that would have us sort of look at our relationship with God and make sure that our hearts are right before God. But there's a portion that also talks about our own stance towards others. And when we consider the older brother, let us follow the example of Jesus Christ. Let us be like Jesus Christ. Let us go out and find those who are lost and let us remind them of the merciful Father that is waiting for them to bring them into their house. That is how we'll do our mission month. That is how we can have a missional stance. So we again, we say it's not just about one month to do missions, but it's actually about how our mindsets, our hearts are changed so that we are missional, so that we're always calling out to people, always drawing people to the Father. Let us bow our hands. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. And we ponder what it would mean to have the hope of eternal life as an anchor, a real anchor for our souls. What it would be like to have your love poured into our hearts, permitting our every being. How our understanding of your grace and your mercy would so enrich our lives. How it would drive out anger jealousy 
our insecurities, our bitterness, how it would flush out hatred and malice, how it will open our eyes to all the people around us waiting for your love, all the people around us who are crying to be known, all the people who are broken, abandoned, who have fallen off the grid. They may have friends surrounding them. They may actually be physically known, but they have no real friends. They have no heart connections. And they are here in this, our city, Lagos, Lord. We know because we have seen them. We know because some of us were such. We thank you, Heavenly Father, because like the earthly father in this parable, you reached out. You reached out to those of us who were sinners or reached out when we were sinners, when we could not help ourselves and you came and you drew us near to you. And at times in our lives when we were like the older brother, you came out and you entreated with us, you pleaded with us. You asked us to get rid of our sense of entitlement, our sense of self-righteousness. You asked us to embrace the righteousness that comes from your son Jesus Christ that you yourself impute to us because of the work of your son on the cross. You ask us to throw away the cubs of fed to pigs and to be fed by your word. You ask us to drink from you, Lord, and be filled and be refreshed. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to save us, who died for our sins, who took on the penalty of the sins, of our sins. We thank you because it was costly to him and free to us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand this truth forevermore in Jesus' name. Our God and our Father, even as we prepare our hearts for Mission Month, help us to daily dwell on these things, to seek your strength, to seek the renewal that enables us to reach out to those who are different from us, or those who might shock us by the way they live. And we pray that your name will be honored, your name will be glorified, Lord, that there will be much rejoicing in heaven, even as many, many, many. Or perhaps, Lord, even if it is just one person is brought to you. Thank you for being our wonderful Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.